Hello, I'm Sarah. And I'm Joanna. And we are your therapist next door. Join us as we demystify therapy and destigmatize mental health. Every episode, we interview a healthcare professional. It's sometimes serious, sometimes sad, most times ridiculous. Special thanks as usual to one of our top contributing patrons today, Chris. Thank you, as always, for your support. Thanks, Chris. Therapist Next Door, thank you. Therapist Next Door podcast is 100% listener-funded and commits that we will never work with advertisers. We don't believe that it is our business or our job to tell you what kind of mattress to buy or encourage you to give therapy to an exploitative therapy service, which is being sued by a lot of people right now. <laughs> Those who will not be named. <laughs> as we believe that labor should be paid, we ask that listeners who are able to contribute, contribute what they can so that we can continue to be a platform to clinicians who further destigmatize mental health and demystify therapy. Every episode, we thank one of our top contributing patrons. Thanks again, Chris. Uh, learn more about perks and ways to support us at patreon.com slash tndpodcast. That's patreon.com slash tndpodcast. For easy access, visit our Instagram at tndpod and find the link in our bio. Let's get on to our show. This week, we welcome Dana M. Sia, who works as a certified peer support specialist, licensed clinical mental health counselor, and adjunct professor at East Carolina University. Welcome, everyone, to Therapist Next Door, the podcast that shows you the human side of your friendly neighborhood healthcare worker, also the cat and dog side. Mm, yeah. We do this by interviewing someone in a helping profession, asking questions that you want the answers to, and answering questions you did not know you had. I'm Joanna, a board-certified music therapist and a licensed professional counselor in the state of Pennsylvania. I'm a white, straight, cisgendered female, and my pronouns are she, they, and I believe that everyone should watch Bluey. That's it. You, That's my fun fact for today is just Bluey. You were telling me about Bluey last week. Could you tell yes. the audience about Bluey? It, it's an Australian Bluey. children's show about a dog, a family of dogs. who They're anthropomorphic, so they drive cars and stuff and like have iPads and also crochet. So <laughs> wow. And Are they the busy world of Richard Scary, but not yes. worms. Okay. There's no worms. All of the animals are dog. All of the like there's mm. other animals, but they're animals. And they're not like they don't they're not self-aware, I guess. They don't have houses. Gotcha. Yeah. So um it's, it's a little like confusing. Racializing dogs a little bit. Like, well maybe. so there is some like breed discussion and it's very <laughs> cute too. And <laughs> <laughs> but like the differences between like sizes and shapes and like even though someone yeah anyway uh nice. great messages i mean not you know not anything is 100 percent perfect there are some things that i don't agree with uh but i have cried and i have been like really excited and i have like had deep thoughts meditations about some episodes so i really think that everyone should just like take a little sip of bluey and it's cute you know, and uh, I've heard of it like it. three times since you mentioned it uh, last week. So yeah, I think it's it's in the zeitgeist. So check it out if you've, yeah. if you've been rumbling around your head. Check it out. Yes. And I am Sarah. I'm an LPC from Pennsylvania, transplant from South Jersey. I'm a cishet white woman. My pronouns are she/her, and I'm getting a tax return for the first time in five years. Ah, that's as amazing my, as my accountant said you did your job too well and overpaid extremely <laughs> so <laughs> good job thank thank you i'm pretty excited to have to do that i'm pretty excited for to get my money back <laughs> my money that i made back uh, i believe in paying taxes i don't believe in paying overpaying my taxes and not getting them back in a tax return so i'm yes. happy that that's happening that. yeah that's great yeah. cool 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 yeah, All right. those are some fairly, fairly adult, yeah. fairly adult things that we're sharing. I think Bluey is a show that kids, kids and their grownups can watch. Yes, it is a children's show, just to be clear. Mm -hmm. But the parents are very real and like they learn and I, I really appreciate it. I do love a learning grownup that maybe will have like conversations with their 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 kiddos about mistakes and maybe having overreactive emotions and yeah. maybe even saying sorry yeah yeah there's there's oh gosh I don't need to, I don't want to go into a blow by blow of certain episodes but there's some really good ones so maybe yeah, I'll make like a list of my favorite that. bluey yeah. episodes yeah sorry idea. yeah <laughs> it's a patreon perk <laughs> joanna's like a curated Lucky watch through you. of blueies it's just gonna be all of them yeah <laughs> she 
she just listed the catalog of episodes. So, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Anyway, I also wanted to say I really appreciate it when guests put in their bio that they have dogs or cats. And I will now always ask them what the names of their animals are. I really, really like that, that that's like a thing that people put in their bios. Uh, I, love that too. I yeah. agree. And I like you drawing attention to it. Because, yeah. yeah. It's coming up soon in this episode. <gasps> yeah. Like sneaky peek. Yeah. All right. Well, I, I'm pretty sure my uh, floors are clean. How about you? Christine. Chef's kiss. Oh, wow. Uh, stay tuned after the break for our lesson for today. And now it's time for our lesson. The lesson is compiled facts describing history and or current events, good or bad, to get in order to give context for the field our interviewee works in. Joanna, we have one source for today. It is the history of transgender healthcare by Farah Naz Khan. Content warning for today, just some light touching on antiquated terms for transgender including, including transvestite and transsexual. Other than that, well, no, also quite mention, <laughs> short mention of not Nazism and, um, and non-trans-affirming healthcare. Very short. All right, so let's talk about the history of trans-affirming healthcare. Magnus Hirschfeld, a German physician who could easily be considered the father of transgender healthcare, coined the term transvestite in 1918 at his Institute for Sexual Science in Berlin. Defining transvestitism is the desire to express one's gender in opposition to their defined sex. Hirschfeld and his colleagues used this now antiquated label as a gateway to the provision of sex-changing therapies and as a means to protect his patients. Going against the grain, Hirschfeld was one of the first to offer his patients the means to achieve sex change, either through hormone therapy, sex change operations, or both. In a time when his contemporaries aimed to, quote, cure transgender patients of their alleged mental affliction, Hirschfeld's adaptation theory supported those who wanted to live according to the gender they felt most aligned with, as opposed to the gender that their sex obligated them to abide by. In 1922, Hirschfeld performed a castration on Dorit Richter, one of the Institute's employees who went on to have a complete sexual reassignment in 1931 with further surgeries at the Institute. Uh, Joanna, another famous person who was operated on at this Institute was Lily Elby, who was the subject of The Danish Girl. Mm. I, which I, was a really cool movie i want to see that yeah great movie debate on obviously uh cis men playing trans women yes okay. um yeah i think that was beautifully done in orange is the new black mm -hmm. um, check that out absolutely all right world war ii and nazi germany forced hirschfeld into exile and minimal further advancements were made by his group at that time pioneering influences in america began emerging in the 1940s, including doc Dr. Alfred Kinsey, the biologist who founded the Institute for Sex Research at Indiana University in 1947. This is now known as the Kinsey Institute. Kinsey was the one who first coined the term transsexual in his gender studies. The first American to undergo a sex change operation was Christine Jorgensen, who brought significant attention to the transgender revolution in America when her story hit New York Times headlines in 1952. Jorgensen's willingness to publicly tell her story helped bring a force to the growing transgender revolution in states. But at the time, the lack of quality transgender healthcare in the U.S. meant that Jorgensen had to travel to Denmark to get the treatment that she needed. Following Jorgensen's successful treatment in Denmark by Dr. Christian Hamburger, many other transgender Americans wrote to Hamburger for similar treatment. Hamburger referred these individuals to American endocrinologist Henry Benjamin. Benjamin's book, The Transsexual Phenomenon, left the most impact on American transgender healthcare. In covering such a highly stigmatized healthcare issue at its time, at the time of its publication, the transsexual phenomenon laid the foundation for modern transgender healthcare. Over a decade later, a 1979 study out of Johns Hopkins called sex reassignment surgeries into question by suggesting that psychosocial outcomes in transgender patients who underwent reassignment surgery were not better than those who went without surgery. Despite criticism and a nod to flaws in its methodology, the study led to the closure of the John Hopkins Gender Identity Clinic and an end to the sex reassignment surgeries offered there. In an attempt to standardize care in response to the study's accusations, the Henry Benjamin International Gender Dysphoria Association, now better known as the World Professional Association for Transgender Health, created the first version of 
of the standards of care for the health of transsexual, transgender, and gender nonconforming people. Despite all the apparent advancements in transgender health care noted above, the 1980 addition of gender identity disorder to the American Psychiatric Association's APA, third Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, so the DSM-3, seemed like a giant leap backwards. But this controversial move actually helped transgender individuals gain access to an often impenetrable healthcare system. Slowly but surely, strides were made towards removing the notion of disorder in the context of gender identity. With the release of the DSM-5 in 2013, gender identity disorder was replaced with the diagnosis gender dysphoria. And further strides were achieved when a government appeals board in 2014 ruled that Medicare must cover surgery for gender transitions, overturning a policy that had been in place since the 80s. Modern transgender healthcare encompasses all the above, along with a shift in focus on patient care. And stay tuned after the break as we talk to our interviewee for today. I'm super excited. Dana M. Sia, pronouns she, her, or they, them, is a volunteer for NAMI and the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, a mental health professional, a survivor of suicide loss, and an adjunct professor at East Carolina University. She's the owner and manager of Panacea Mental Wellness, PLLC, where she offers counseling and assessments. They also provide consultations, trainings, and business coaching as president of CNC Resourcing Incorporated. Dana's work is influenced by her experiences as a consumer of mental health services and her training as a certified peer support specialist, as well as having loved ones with mental health concerns. They enjoy working with transgender slash gender non-binary folks, neurodivergent folks, and folks with disabilities. Dana has a PhD in rehabilitation counseling and administration with an MS in clinical rehabilitation and is a mental health counselor. She lives with mental health disorders, her spouse, and her three dogs. Dana, welcome. Thank you so much. I realize as you're talking about me, it just sounds like a mouthful. <laughs> well, it sounds that's like it's really been cool a life mouthful. a life Yeah. Experience building. It's, it's really, really impressive and really inspiring. Thank you. First off, what are the names of your dogs? Uh, I've got a 60-pound Black Lab Scout and then two Chihuahua Rat Terriers, Rocky and Wilbur. Oh, if we had all the time, I'd love to hear a little bit about their dynamics. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But it sounds, it sounds like a beautiful, a beautiful home. All right. Yeah, they're a lot of fun. Cool. Dana, can you tell us a little bit about your work? Yeah, sure. So uh, as you mentioned in my bio, I actually started out as a consumer of mental health um, and became a peer support specialist first. So this was actually, I didn't know anything about peer support specialists. Uh, someone in a support group that I was in had recommended like, hey, you're really good at this. You should become a peer support specialist. I've realized it's different for every state. For my state, North Carolina, to become certified, you have to have shown recovery for at least two years from mental health and or substance use disorder. And then you also have to take a 40-hour training that's specific to peer support specialists and then an additional 20 hours of training, just kind of generally. Um, there's a whole application process. You have to have at least two references. And then you renew like every two years, just like you would any other license or certification. But really just coming from a place of, as the name suggests, a peer. So able to support someone from that personal level of like, hey, this is what worked for me. It might work for you. Or this is some insight that I have into working with the mental health system. Um, just really appreciated the work I was able to do both in the group setting and individually with other peers. Um, but I just realized like it wasn't enough. I needed to take that next step. I was actually working as an insurance agent while I was also doing peer support and knew that that wasn't my lifetime career. So I went back and got my master's. And uh, if you've heard of me before, you've heard this story, but in my master's, I realized why therapists are so shitty, because our training really doesn't prepare us for what we need to do. Um, and I decided to go back and get my PhD and fix that too. So it was a, a long progression to where I'm at now, where I feel like I can come from that peer's pr perspective still and keep in mind, like as a consumer in my own experience with severe and persistent mental illness, 
while addressing it from kind of inside the system. I love the full frontal confession and realization after grad school of just therapists can be and are really shitty if they don't completely unlearn and kind of like maybe not a great choice of words, but like purge the really harmful things they've been taught. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so thank you for bringing attention to that. Hey, I wonder what the power dynamic difference is like for peer specialists versus, you know, coming in as a therapist. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. So the there is some power dynamic there still yet. You know, the peer specialist is getting paid in this um, position. At least we're hoping they're getting paid. That's been a concern here recently with some of the policies um, that I've been working on with other peer support specialists, trying to make sure that peer support specialists are paid um, to the level that they really deserve, which I think all of us should be paid at some sort of living wage. Um, but that the lived expertise that peer support specialists bring to that sort of dynamic. So typically you might be working with someone um, as the client, if you will, who is going through a mental health crisis or who is experiencing maybe mental health issues for the first time or recognizing that they need help for the first time, specifically from mental health professionals. So there's that power dynamic in play where the peer support specialist has kind of been there, done that. They've had that experience and they're coming in with that knowledge and lived expertise, whereas the other person may literally be at the worst part of their life um, and where they're at with their mental health. Uh, But it does, to your point, come back to being a peer. So it's more about like what works for you. Um, let's problem solve. Let's brainstorm. Let's talk about the system as it is. Uh, you know, peer support specialists are coming in with a wealth of information about different medications, but they can't prescribe it. So they're at least giving some insight to clients on how the process might be, how frustrating it is, how to advocate for themselves. Um, so it's it's there's not as much power. They can't diagnose, um, they can't prescribe medications. So some of those larger power dynamics at play aren't there, but still yet the client is in a vulnerable state and the peer support specialist has to be really aware of that when maintaining that relationship. Yeah. And I mean, I think I I do a lot of the same thing as a therapist, like talking about medications and helping clients to advocate for themselves at the doctor, which was not taught to me in grad school, uh, which I had to seek out on my own and still need to do more learning on all of the medications. Like I I specialize in anxiety, so I know a lot of the anti-anxiety medications. Like, thank goodness there are trainings out there. But yeah, I how do you like balance your frustrations with the mental health system and working inside of it and and like receiving care from it? That that's like a super loaded question early on. But mm-hmm. Well, it's for me anyway, I'll speak to my own experience with that, uh, advocating for myself and learning how to address my needs. And if the counselor ain't it, then I'm going to go find another one. And I know that that in and of itself can be a really frustrating process because you feel like you're trying things over and over again. Uh, For me, part of starting medication, which I was really opposed to, and honestly, the first few medications I were on weren't appropriate for what I was experiencing and didn't really know that until later. I was going to my primary care provider as a like, you know, later teen. Um, mm-hmm. I was in college or late high school. So it, there, I wasn't really getting what I needed out of that support. Uh, and so I've learned for myself to advocate for what I need. But I also have learned how to advocate for what clients need within our field as well, uh, which is not going to be a one size fits all type of situation. It's going to be very specific. To your point, though, when I was in my master's and knowing what we learn and kind of how the classes are taught, I was very outspoken about how things could be better and very outspoken about how what we were learning uh, could be harmful and how we needed better ways of learning. Um, So I'm not, you know, I'm sure I pissed off a few people here and there. I know I did. (laughs) That's not a question. I know I did. Um, You know, folks either kind of work well with me or they don't, um, because I'm always constantly trying to push for better and trying to make sure that all the voices are being heard, which is kind of a, a role that I played in my master's program, for better or for worse was making sure that all the other students, because 
they had a concern of like, what happens if you speak out? And we all have that in our field. What happens if you speak out and the reaction is negative and you don't get that letter of recommendation or you lose that job or that clinical placement that you really wanted? Um, what happens if your reputation gets tarnished? For me, I didn't care. I was, I had the privilege of coming from peer support where I already had plenty of folks who could write me letters of recommendation, plenty of connections that I can make to find jobs and clinical placements. So for me, there was less of a risk of what would happen if I pissed people off. Uh, so I was able to use my voice to help to promote the needs of my fellow students. And I try to do the same in the field now, which is partly why I went into my own business so that I could treat employees the way that I wanted to be treated as an employee so that I could fix some of the systemic problems that I saw in the places that I worked and practiced uh, to make it better for folks who were coming up behind me. Even in my PhD program, I helped to revamp the comprehensive exam process, which had been around for probably longer than I've been alive. And I was like, this isn't working anymore. Um, we need to change it. And that was a, a long process. And thankfully, I had my cohort behind me. Uh, if it had just been me, it probably wouldn't have happened. But they stuck their necks out there too, um, and they work to get that process changed. So I'm, I'm not about the, you know, I had to do it, so you have to do it. I'm about like, how do we continually make it better for the next person and the next person and the next person? And that sometimes gets me in trouble to a certain extent, but I've been really fortunate. Um, I think I can sweet talk my way out of most things. Uh, that's a privilege that I have. And so I've, I've been able to get away with a lot. But I think one of the major issues that I see right now with our field after graduation within what we need to take for continuing education is a lack of applied knowledge. So that's also where I'm trying to improve by offering trainings that are interactive. You're not just going to come and like hear somebody talk for an hour and a half. You're going to have to engage with other people and engage with the information. Um, how often do you go to a CE and put it on play in the background and do laundry or whatever, right? Like we all do that. No shame there. And at the same time, how are we improving if all we're doing is having it as background noise? So that's those are the ways that I'm trying to change it by promoting the interests of the consumers, the people that we are here for, by improving the way folks are being taught and the way that we are learning and the programs that we're taking, and then our continuing education and our ability to apply what we came here to do. That's extremely exciting. I'm like, so cool. What trainings do you offer? So I've been doing a lot of trainings for other universities and organizations um, for a while now. And I decided like, I want to do my own. Um, so I've started at CNC Resourcing. The first training I'm doing is on transgender and gender non-binary folks and how to create safe spaces. Um, a lot of folks are looking for more than just the 101 type stuff of how to use pronouns. They want to dive in deeper. So part of my training actually includes a form of consultation you go through the first part, which is an hour and a half, and you learn the skills and techniques, changes that you can make. And then the second half is a month later, and you get to come back and everyone gets to talk about what went well, what didn't go well, and how to improve from there. So you're not being left on your own to figure this out and then, you know, wondering like, okay, well, how is this going? What are other people doing? Uh, in a sense, we're creating a community of folks who are all here for the same reason and have an opportunity to apply, again, apply the knowledge and then see how well it works. Because we learn the most from our mistakes. Um, we don't learn from applying it well and then just cruising. We learn most from really being able to fix things. So I've got the um, creating safe spaces for transgender, gender non-binary folks. I'm working on creating safe spaces for survivors of suicide loss. This is another area we don't have a lot of research on. We don't have a lot of clinical applicable skills to use with this particular group. Um, so I'm, I'm excited to be able to bring my years of knowledge in both of these areas and more. Uh, I want to create one later in the year on working with autistic and ADHD folks and maybe include a little bit of assessment. That's what I do. And 
my assessment process um, is different than most others. So I'm trying to, again, bring in the personal aspect of this for my own trainings. But um, I do trainings for other organizations. The University of Arkansas um, has currents. So these are for voc rehab folks. And I've been able to do um, trainings for them to bring in my knowledge where voc rehab is kind of siloed. Those folks don't have a lot of opportunities to take specific voc rehab trainings that also broaden uh, who they're working with and the knowledge to support various clients that they're going to be meeting with because it is so focused on disability. So I've, I've rambled, rambled on enough. Um, <laughs> just check in and see what your thoughts or questions are from there. I wouldn't call something as jam-packed with the content you were sharing rambling. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's I like would... a, it's a fire hydrant, a fire hose. And all the water <laughs> I mean, you. there's plenty of fire to put out. So thank you. I mean, Jesus, I like that. I was like pretty fucking awesome to hear. So I appreciate that. I, I, if I can like go back a few minutes too, I'm just, it, it sounds like the, you know, the primary gain is you're showing up for the consumer, you're showing up for the folks in need. And it sounds like the secondary gain is you're really rejecting these like very uh, antiquated, patriarchal, like white supremacist uh, systems that you're noticing, like even in academia, the, like folks that tell, or excuse me, programs that tout themselves as really progressive you are you are showing up and you're noticing oh look good like this ain't it mm -hmm. <laughs> so so and, and I love the idea of your assessment I, I can imagine the assessment process you have whereas other ones that we have are very manualized and like literally keeping therapist eyes on the paper or on the screen and not on the, on the patient I can imagine that yours like the interactiveness in it is really just really different from anything that we've seen and I could you tell us a little bit more about the assessment if that applies mm -hmm. sure so it was described to me by one client as a conversation rather than a test. And that's what I'm hoping to do. You don't know that I am taking clinical data when I'm asking my questions. You are sharing information about your history. You're sharing information about what's going on for you right now. You're sharing stories and examples that I desperately need for this assessment, but I'm not asking those specific like typical manualized to your point questions. This really is a conversation about your experience. Um, so I've, I've been very fortunate to have a lot of folks get referred to me who have either had bad experiences with other providers or who are just like afraid of the whole process and want somebody to just get on that human level with them. I don't require observer reports. Many of the folks I work with are adults who are estranged from their families. Um, maybe their parents have died and they don't have any folks from their childhood that they either have access to or who that they would trust to give accurate representation of what it's like in their childhood. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm just trusting that person and trusting their report um, of what they're experiencing. That's not to say if someone didn't want to have someone come in and give an observation report. That's cool. We can totally do that. But I'm not, again, sticking to some manual that even the manuals don't really have a threshold, right? They're like, oh, this person might have it if they reach this point and they very strongly might have it if they reach this other point. But there is no cut and dry for what is and isn't a diagnosis. We have to apply our really like the spidey senses and mm -hmm. um, the ways that we can dive into what are very limited from the DSM criteria um, and be able to apply it to the person who's sitting in front of us. It's not going to look the same for every single person. It's not going to look the same for the same diagnosis. Um, everybody has a different experience and that's what I'm there for. I want to hear what's going on with the person rather than having some agenda of ruling in or ruling out something. Yeah. And not to mention like who created those assessments and who were they created for? Mm -hmm. I know when I had to give assessments, like I had clients be like, I can't, it, it, it was for, um, it was like a, a dementia temperature test. I can't remember the name of it. It had like a really terrible name too, like MUDS or something like that. Mm. And the story that people had to remember was like not applicable to most of the clients I was working with. And as a and sometimes as a clinician, you're like, well, this is I can't go outside of this because of all of the systems that are surrounding us. Mm -hmm. I know, was that the slums? The slums. I remember that horrible <laughs> yeah. name. 
it's because like like jack and jill is a she's a um you know jack is like a stockbroker in chicago also i do really well in the slums because i remember that pretty well (laughs) yeah they're from illinois not chicago and that's just like yeah one of the questions is like what state are they from and that's like assuming a lot Mm-hmm. yeah because in the story it only says chicago um it doesn't say illinois right yeah i mean even we have some assessments out there i think that are better than others um but no one assessment is going to really give us all the information that we need so mm-hmm. it's about being truly comprehensive in what we're doing um and looking at the person's whole life rather than hoping that they know the state that a city is in um it just doesn't yeah it doesn't make sense there's a lot that to your point how was our field built um how was the dsm written not that long ago uh sexual orientation other than heterosexual um was deemed a mental health disorder um even now we have gender identity um in the DSM, that's kind of a catch-22. Some folks need, as in surgeons and insurance, need or want the diagnosis so that they can provide that life-affirming care. Um, But on the other hand, is it truly fair to be listed with other mental health diagnoses? Uh, And that's a conversation that we're having right now. And uh, unfortunately, because the DSM text revision for the fifth edition just came out, we probably won't see any of those major changes for another decade or so. We're It's so far behind in how we're able to keep up with the diagnoses and the patterns of what's actually going on with people um, that we're limited in that way. Thankfully, the ICD does have the updated um, where issues related to gender is under sexual health, which is where it should be, not under mental health. Um, but as long as it's still in the DSM and as long as folks in the United States of America, again, insurance and surgeons are requiring it, um, we kind of have to play to those rules to get things done. Yeah, and being real that most surgeons require it because insurance companies require it and, and they are the ones dictating this process. And, and despite insurance companies, you know, as you've mentioned, Dana, employing healthcare providers, uh, they are they're servicing the insurance company first before they are servicing the patient. Mm-hmm. For sure. Yeah, there's a lot of issues with insurance right now. Um, I just made a complaint against Blue Cross Blue Shield as a consumer because my uh, dermatologist left the practice. They moved back closer family. Cool. Uh, the new dermatologist came in and it's been almost a year Uh, And they have not been contracted with Blue Cross Blue Shield, despite being in a group practice that is otherwise uh, paneled with Blue Cross Blue Shield. And I reached out to other um, (laughs) other dermatologists. And just for context for folks, we are the 12th of March right now. And when I called, they said, well, we don't have any availability until February. And I was like, okay, maybe I heard it wrong or something. But no, they mean February 2024, almost a year from now is when their availability is. Um, So that's, it's inappropriate for any field. It's happening in mental health as well. Folks are waiting nine, 12 months and they're still not contracted. Like how can we serve consumers that want to use insurance if we ourselves can't even get paneled? Um, And then, you know, for folks who decide to go private pay, which I am, Um, sometimes get shamed. Like, why aren't you taking insurance? Why are you charging so much? Um, And so it's a a back and forth between being able to provide the service to the consumer while also dealing with the insurance companies and having to meet their standards as well. Um, So that was like three different fields wrapped into one thing, but I think it really does come back to the power that insurance companies hold over the access to services that we need. Yeah, the, the, the beautiful, insidious partnership of pharmaceutical companies and insurance companies just like skipping their way into the future <laughs> with financial wealth. And, and you know, we are all continuing to suffer for that. Uh, Bessel van der Kolk in his, I know that he is a very popular name to bring up, but he talks a lot about in his 
presentation, and I'm guessing his book, Body Keeps the Score, which I know we all just die to die to say, right, in, in clinical settings. But he talks <laughs> about how, how pharmaceutical companies do when he was trying to get a diagnosis, I think it was developmental trauma. It was like a developmental disorder relating to trauma. And like there was pushback from pharmaceutical companies and insurance companies and, and, you know, ended up not being able to get, to get the diagnoses in the DSM, despite support from like groups and groups of psychotherapists, psychologists, and psychiatrists, getting this pushback from non-clinical groups, like non-healthcare groups. Mm -hmm. I mean, I I think about that sometimes it haunts me. It, It haunts me at night, but that story really is very upsetting to me. Not a question, just a lament. Uh, but then yeah. I'm wondering how in your care for trans and non-binary folks, how this influence from maybe insurance companies and maybe pharmaceutical companies, what have you, can show up in your space? So I part of, um, again, trying to change the system or doing what I can within the system, I decided not to take insurance. I decided not to play that game. I don't have the time, the energy, and the money to do that. I have my own disabilities, chronic health conditions, and that just wasn't going to work for me. That's it's a lot of effort, and I applaud the folks who do that so that they can take insurance and meet those clients' needs. I just knew for me, I, I wasn't going to be able to handle that. So often clients do come to me because I don't take insurance because they don't want some sort of record um, noted with their insurance company or elsewhere. So they will come to me for services, uh, trans, uh, gender and non-binary clients. When I worked at a, it was a community clinic. It was free. It was while I was in my PhD offered through the department And they would come to me because I wasn't taking notes in the EHR system in Epic. I actually kept paper records locked in like a fireproof um, box rather than doing it in the EHR because they were afraid that if other providers were able to access their records through the EHR, it would essentially out them to who knows who. Uh, And that's a very valid concern because my understanding of the EHR was anyone could access it, uh, but they had to know why. So there was no extra like password protection. There was no extra like hoops to jump through to get access to that information. And we're seeing that now with insurance companies as they try to connect the data behind the scenes. Um, with the Health Connects, again, Blue Cross Blue Shield, bless it, you know, bring them up again. But they are pushing for that as well so that all of the records are connected and easily accessed, which, okay, makes sense for, let's say, when I went uh, to college and they were able to pull up the record of my tetanus shot. Cool. That's super helpful. But did they need to know my history of mental health or the trauma I had been through? Probably not. (laughs) So our field is unique in that way that we are really carrying the quote secrets of our clients. Mm -hmm. And these aren't necessary for other providers to know to get treated accurately unless the client wants them to know that. We've even seen where mental health diagnoses and experiences have been used against folks. If you go into the ER and you have an anxiety diagnosis already and you think you're having a heart attack, they could blow it off as a panic attack because they say, well, look, you've had anxiety and panic attacks in the past. My mom had had has, I'm not really sure, um, a heart condition called Wolf Parkinson's White. And she had an attack unknowing that she had this condition. And the way she described it to me was exactly like an anxiety attack. If she'd gone to the hospital, and been treated for anxiety attack rather than a WPW attack, she could have died. So it really is important that, again, with an advocacy, that we're able to advocate for clients who have mental health diagnoses, uh, that not all of those records are shared, and that we are protecting uh, the knowledge that we have of their experiences from folks who could use it against them. With transgender and gender non-binary folks, if they had an accident happen and they were taken to the hospital, they may not want those providers to know that they're trans or gender non-binary. Maybe their presentation doesn't necessarily match their gender identity. That could put them at a very unsafe space, um, which I have seen. That is a true concern and a true reality. So 
to get back to your original question, some folks come to me because I'm not taking insurance because they know that this isn't going to be reported to their insurance unless, of course, they ask for like a super bill and they go out of network and all that jazz. Um, but I think it's it's more, not more, maybe increased confidence in the confidentiality of our services, knowing that they're not, the insurance isn't able to just access their notes or pull records at any time. Um, so I think that that does create a safer space for folks to be more open um, and to share. But still yet, I'm thinking when I'm writing notes, and you didn't ask about this, but when I'm writing notes, I'm thinking about what if the consumer read this? And so I make sure that I might not put in every single detail. I'm going to put in general information so that I'm aware and the next person that gets it is aware. But I'm not going to put in very detailed information unless it's necessary. Uh, I think that's something that we forget as well when we're doing our records and the administrative part of our jobs that rarely anyone likes is that this is about the consumer as well and that they could ask for these records at any time. So we need to be careful about that. But I'm also careful about the diagnoses that I work with and letting them know what diagnosis they've been given and why. That's a part of my assessment process as well. It's a, an hour review detail by detail in the report so that they know why they have the diagnosis they have. Um, and many folks will say, I've never been told. I've never been told what diagnosis I had. I've never been told why I have this diagnosis. And that's happened to me too. I've been to plenty of therapists who I know now on the other side that they had to have given me a diagnosis to use my insurance, but they never told me what it was. They never told me why I had it. So it's really important that we're, again, looking at this holistically with the power that we have as providers in writing these permanent record notes and in making these permanent decisions about diagnoses and who's it benefiting. Um, is it the client? Is it the insurance? Is it us? Something we need to be asking. Yeah. And knowing that those diagnoses can just follow people, especially in the way our health records are are linked today. Like I looked at my health record and there were diagnoses on there that I'd never, ever talked to a doctor about. I was like, what this, what is, th what is this? And they were like, oh, don't worry about it. Like, okay, but... <laughs> Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I have an idea. I think it's because of a medication I was taking. Someone just assumed that they should give me this diagnosis, but I'm going to worry about it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Joanna and Othello with that. I, I, I think a lot of people come in if they're new to the therapy world, not even understanding that they do need a diagnosis. I mean, on super bills, adjustment disorders are like used heavily <laughs> by me. And I, yeah, I had a therapist once ask me what diagnosis I wanted, like listed like what I was comfortable with. And, and she knew I was in the field. So and like, I don't know if I would have done that, but it was just a really interesting, like, hey, what do you want me? Ha like you have insurance. What would you like? And I was like, adjustment disorder, depression, anxiety sounds good to me. <laughs> and like, truly that, that if you're listening from an insurance perspective, this could be taken a certain way. But this is also like, this is also worrying about possible danger and violence against you in a healthcare system that can come in many different ways. So you are protecting your patient, you're protecting your client. And that highly valuable and absolutely necessary. And even Dana giving that education about what a diagnosis is, how far it can follow them, what it is, what it means. I love going through and reviewing, like I have the DSM-5 pocket guide and just kind of going over what, what it takes to be in a diagnosis, but also talking about how, you know, they don't need to be fitting in a box and how, and how getting that diagnosis may make them feel that way. Yeah. Diagnoses are again, a double-edged sword for some folks. It's like, oh, I finally have a name to put on my experience. And sometimes it is necessary to get the right medications or the right treatment. Um, and then for other folks, it can be very damaging um, and hold them back. So we have to be careful when we are having those conversations with clients about diagnosis so that we know kind of what is the client wanting to get out of this. I have had conversations with them like, hey, this is your experience. This is what I'm noting. Does this seem accurate to you? Are you comfortable with this going on a super bill? I've had that conversation with um, clients for sure. So we can make sure that we're on the same page. Um, I wouldn't want them to get a super bill and look at it and to say something and they're like, mm, what? Like, where did, how did you get that? Like, why is that on there? Um, I'd rather be upfront with them about the diagnosis and the process of that. Uh, than to have someone get surprised on the back end. Like I have too. Um, 
this wasn't a mental health diagnosis, but this was a medical diagnosis that I didn't realize I had. Um, and I was going through all these procedures and no one even told me like why I was getting it done. Um, so it's a scary thing when you don't have the knowledge and these other people are making these decisions about your life for you. If you're comfortable, could you talk a little bit about providing gender affirming care in a part of our country that's not as gender affirming as others? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I'm in North Carolina. I think I mentioned that. And we were famous for HB2, the bathroom bill, which was trying to limit folks on which bathroom they could use based upon their gender identity and or sex marker. Yeah. So we made quite a bit of news around that. Uh, fortunately, it was eventually kind of replaced by something that was less constricting and then uh, finally kind of fell off um, once that replacement was no longer valid. And now we've seen a lot of local ordinances that are making protective um, policies and procedures for transgender, gender, non-binary folks. And in the background, North Carolina is actually doing a lot for trans and gender, non-binary folks. It's a lot easier to get the sex marker on your driver's license changed. It's just a simple form that the client fills out one half. Uh, a provider, there's a list of applicable providers, fills out the second half. Both parties sign, and then the client takes it to the DMV and gets it changed. Most recently, with the birth certificate sex marker change, that's been made easier too. All you need, well, I guess you could take that new driver's license and go and get your birth certificate changed. Um, so the obstacles that have been there requiring proof of a surgery, requiring proof from the surgeon who provided the surgery, uh, all these things have kind of fallen away a bit in the background. I don't um, want, I don't, I'm not exposing anything North Carolina is doing that you wouldn't find out if you Googled, but they're not advertising that. Um, they're doing it in the background to make things easier for folks. But in general, the Southeast hasn't been the most accepting of trans and gender non-binary folks. There are real concerns about going in public, especially in our rural areas, mm -hmm. uh, of which we have a lot, and how folks are going to interact with trans and gender non-binary folks. Even if you aren't trans or gender non-binary, if someone thinks you are, you could be um, treated harmfully, and that includes violence and death as well. Uh, we know that Black trans women, um, Black femme Women are at the highest risk of violence and death right now. And we know that the Southeast is also not as welcoming for BIPOC folks. So when you've got several marginalized identities, um, you're Black, you're trans, and you're femme, and they overlap on each other, uh, that increased risk of violence, it just goes up and up with each increased uh, marginalized identity. So it's important to be aware of that when we're working with clients who are afraid to go out in public um, and being able to validate those concerns and work within the constraints of where they live. There are some pockets that are more affirming, but there are those out there that are not. And so we have to be really aware of that when working with clients. Um, and just, I think for the most part, what I'm trying to do is just around language and our approach with clients. You don't have to know everything about trans and gender non-binary folks to be able to provide appropriate care. Um, just check yourself on the biases that you bring into the room. Um, check yourself on the language that you're using and be open to being corrected when you make mistakes. We're all going to make mistakes. Again, that's one of the best ways to learn is by making a mistake, being corrected, uh, and then moving on from that. So I don't know if that answered your question. It's kind of a simplistic way of talking about working with trans and gender non-binary folks in the Southeast of the United States. Um, but we just have to be aware of their worldview, um, the client individually, but also their worldview and the environments that they find themselves in. And bringing it back to the safety of uh, electronic health systems in a smaller community and like I mean, because there might be someone who can access your data that that knows you personally that you might not necessarily want to come out to and 
they just have that access. Mm-hmm. Right. Let's say that the client's partner works in healthcare. And what if their client's partner searches them for some reason and then sees this about them? That's a very real concern when you live in a very small community. Um, what if you work for, you work for a healthcare agency? Uh, one of your coworkers searches you. Yeah, it's, it's a real concern. It's a valid concern. And we need to be able to do our best on our end to protect the client and to protect their records. Do you think that there is a is an occurrence of burnout that can happen for trans and non-binary folks from like constant advocacy uh, to healthcare providers, but also like like government systems as well. I'm even thinking of like encountering like a, a person at the DMV after a long day. Like, how does that show up um, symptomatically for clients? For sure, yes. I'm thinking about the trans broken arm, which is uh, a story, and I think it's based in like a real story. You can um, Google that phrase, but essentially this person, this trans person went to the hospital with a broken arm and never got the broken arm treated because all the healthcare providers wanted to do was focus on the fact that this person was trans. Uh, And this can happen in mental health as well. Um, We can cause that burnout with clients if we're focusing too hard on their gender identity or too hard on their mental health and leaving the other aspect or aspects of their life off of what we're talking about. We need to be able to, again, include their entire worldview and everything that's going on for them. Uh, If they feel like they're constantly having to explain their experience over and over again, that gets exhausting for anybody. Um, If we think about within suicide prevention, this is uh, pretty high for the trans and gender non-binary folks. So the transnational survey, which I think uh, the third iteration of this was just done a year or two ago. They're still working on uh, collecting the findings and publishing and everything. But over the first two transnational survey results, we saw that about 40% of transgender, gender non-binary adults had attempted suicide at least once in their lifetime. That in and of itself sounds like a pretty big number, 40% of a community attempting suicide at least once. And then we look at the fact that it's eight to 10 times the rate of the general population. We know that there's a big gap within suicide prevention that's not being addressed for the trans and gender non-binary folks. Um, That's what some of my research has been on, how best to address the not only risk of suicide, but how to reinforce the protective factors against suicide, which is so often left out of the conversation. We're so focused on what are the risk factors and what are the warning signs? Those are great. But if you don't know what to do with it, once you've got a person in front of you, then it doesn't really matter. Uh, We need to be asking the question, are you having thoughts of suicide? Are you thinking of killing yourself? being very direct with our questions, and then knowing what to do if someone says yes, which is not, by the way, to call 911 immediately. (laughs) Um, There are so many variations of what suicidal ideation can look like, and that, again, is going to be a concern for our trans and gender non-binary clients. If we call 911, who's showing up? Are they trans-affirming? I don't know. Maybe, hopefully, sometimes. Are they even mental health-affirming? Again, I don't know. So all of these concerns are constantly going through our clients' minds, not to mention just can they freaking use the bathroom? Like something so simple that we do on a daily basis and don't think twice about. Um, So you're talking about burnout. It's just exhausting to exist as a trans or gender non-binary person when you're constantly having to assess the level of risk for every situation that you go in. We want to be able as mental health providers to provide a space where they literally can show up as themselves and be safe and confident in knowing that we're going to take care of them uh, and we're not going to contribute to what they already have going on. And I think that's why it's so important for clinicians to have this training and not to jump to, oh, uh, someone has suicidal ideation, go to the hospital. That's that's what happens. And, and it and that like first of all, makes clients scared to disclose that I've, I've come up with, come up against. And, and honestly, my experience was just being exposed to it, probably unhealthily for myself. And, 
you know, just like that wasn't taught to me and should have been taught to me and should be a, a continuing education. And while you're talking, I'm also thinking of like my own commitment to continuing to learn about all the different people that that we treat and that it's so important for clinicians to like find that humble place where you say, I don't know. And like, and I'm going to learn. Absolutely. Suicide prevention, just suicide in general is hardly talked about in our master's programs. Uh, there should be a whole course just on suicide. I had a classmate in my master's program who said, oh, well, I'm not worried about that because I'm never going to work with anybody who's suicidal. And I'm like, okay. And a couple of years later, we had met up after graduation. They're like, everyone I work with has thoughts of suicide. And I was like, yep, that's kind of how it is. Like, if you're a human, you're at risk of having thoughts of suicide. No one is immune to that. I'm sure there are some people who go through their entire lives and don't have thoughts of suicide. But I would argue that the majority of people probably have thoughts of suicide at some point in their life. Um, And that was one of the things that I talked about openly in my master's program was my own experience with thoughts of suicide. My own experience losing my dad was to suicide because we weren't talking about it. So I had to create spaces to have those conversations that were desperately needed, but weren't being talked about. I like this general public reminder too of more options. I mean, the need for more options in case of crisis. And I did like the very careful way that you had mentioned that uh, a law enforcement official may not be trans affirming or mental health affirming. And you certainly can encounter people, but remembering that the system is not in any way mm-hmm. trans or mental health affirming. And you know, sometimes we will get a couple of folks that will slip through the cracks and be be wonderful, but the system is not wonderful itself. So yes, I I I also love these continuing educations that are popping up for clinicians that are that invite conversation when a client is in crisis. Because I myself I talked with Joanna about this at length. I myself can have experienced like a lot of apprehension when the topic comes up because I just get very fearful. You know, I, just my own anxiety definitely shows up. And I'm very grateful for these spaces where we can now be taught to learn how to sit with a client when they're feeling this way, that they are not a danger. You know, they do not become a danger suddenly just because they have disclosed something so scary and so personal to you. And then I'm really loving this conversation that we are all that we are all having a lot more around suicide, especially as it as it's happening more. Well, I'm just thinking, like, what do you think clients are doing outside of session? They're having thoughts of suicide then too. Like, we're only spending an hour or so every week with them, and I remind clients of that too. You know, they're like, "Oh, thank you so much." I'm like, "You're the one doing the stuff. Like, you're the one doing stuff in between each session." Yep. Um, so if they, once they brought it into session. It, it's already been there a while. They've made it this far without you. They will make it without you again, <laughs> not to undermine the impact that we can have on clients, but there are really resilient folks out there who are living with thoughts of suicide every day and still just getting through every day and doing maybe even what they want to be doing. Um, they might be living a full life with thoughts of suicide. Um, yeah, if we shy away from that conversation, what does that show our clients that we're not comfortable with that, that that's not a safe conversation, that we shouldn't talk about that. Uh, that's been the stigma around suicide for forever. It used to be a crime to attempt or die from suicide, which is where the phrase commit suicide came from. Um, and we know now to replace that phrase with like died from suicide or killed oneself or just simply attempted suicide um, rather than tried to commit suicide. It's it's not a sin. It's not a crime. Uh, so commit suicide really isn't an appropriate phrase to use anymore. And I think you had asked earlier, like, what do I do within the system to change things? And that's one, that's it's language. It's how we're talking about things. If you say, you know, commit suicide to a client and it carries that weight, then you're you have you run the risk of like cutting them off from having that conversation because just of the language, the judgmental implications of the language. Um, it's so important how we're talking about these things and how we are encouraging clients to talk about them as well. There are tons of trainings out there that you can take um, to work with clients who are having thoughts of suicide. And the one that I push the most is sometimes the simplest counseling on access to lethal means. It is literally having the conversation with them about what lethal means do you have and how can we keep them safe? 
because thoughts of suicide in and of themselves are not dangerous. It's when you act on them that they become dangerous. And if you have decreased access to means, it's the number one way to prevent a suicide death. It also a call to action for all of us, right? <laughs> Changing the language that we're using and also yeah. giving ourselves more education and continuing to purge what has been taught to us in our, in our academic experience. To challenge the things yeah. that we've been taught. Yeah. I agree. And to know that those thoughts aren't a sin as well. It doesn't mean anything about you or the life you're living or your appreciation for it. It is just a thought. It's just a thought. You are not your thoughts. Mm-hmm. Well, Dana, it's been such a pleasure and so informative and such a joy having you on. We really appreciate the time. Do you have any final thoughts or any any really well-crafted, I do this every time, any really well-crafted words of advice you'd like to leave our listeners in your final message? Well, they showed up here for a reason. They came here to take something from this conversation. And so I would just encourage folks to continue to do that. Find the spaces where you feel you are pushed. Find the spaces where you are a little bit uncomfortable, not so anxiety driven that you can't take in the information, but just that bit of uncomfortableness where you have the opportunity to grow. Find those spaces, find those people, find those trainings, um, just search out ways to do and be better because uh, our clients deserve it and we deserve to provide that service. Um, and I think it helps us too. Instead of us getting burnt out and tired of the same thing day in and day out, if we're able to improve the work that we do, we're going to see greater benefit for our clients and for ourselves. Where can people find you on the internet? <laughs> uh, you can just literally Google my name. It's pretty unique. I think there's only one <laughs> other person in Seattle um, that has my name. So it's not me. I'm in North Carolina. But yeah, check me out. Uh, Panacea, if you're in North Carolina and um, you're looking for you know referrals, um, I'm happy to do that. Panacea Mental Wellness. Uh, and then if you're looking for trainings, consultation or business coaching, um, CNC resourcing, check me out there. But even if it's not me, if I'm not it, that's cool too. I will help you get connected with a resource that is. Uh, I'm not the end all be all say all. There are a lot of other great trainers, coaches, consultants, clinicians that are out there. Um, I understand it's not always me. So I'm happy to get folks connected with other resources as well. Thank you so much for talking with us today. And I I feel like we say this all the time, but I we are definitely going to have future conversations. And thank you so much for the work that you do and the spaces that you provide. There's like so vital and necessary. Well, same to y'all, right? Like, thank you for holding the space and giving me the opportunity to just talk a little bit. Like we barely scratched the surface, <laughs> yeah. right? So just very appreciative that you are um, putting this out here for other folks to learn and grow. Oh, yeah. All right, Dana, we'll talk soon. Sounds good. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the show. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review us on Stitcher, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. You can check us out on Instagram at TNDPod, on Twitter at TNDPod1, what is in the number one, or visit our website tndpodcast.com check out our patreon it's pretty cool uh it's patreon.com slash tndpodcasts you can also email us questions at therapistsnextdoor at gmail.com if you'd like to be interviewed on the show head over to our instagram and check out the request form there sarah is there anything that you would like to plug uh newsletter is up and running enjoy that oh yeah uh, tell therapy with sarah how do we yeah okay just tell yeah. like we go to tell therapy with sarah and then First what do we step, do there? Sarah.com. Second step, if you haven't been on the website in the past 30 days, you will be prompted to, to uh, you know, be on the newsletter. But, you know, the usual monthly blog posts on millennial anti-capitalist struggles, Gen Z, we got stuff there for you too. We understand that you are, you are comrades with us in this, in this uh, world that we're in. Uh, also business coaching and anti-exploitative therapy, or excuse me, anti-exploitative career coaching. Come on, bring me your stuff. Joanna, any pluggy duggies? Yeah, orianatherapy.com. Um, working to dismantle diet culture and the capitalism around it and kind of heal from that because it's a very long journey. And also oh, yeah. like, you know, rekindle a positive relationship with food. And yeah, maybe I'll write blog posts one day. Who knows? Just keep checking out the website and the Instagram. There might be stuff there. There might not. Just following my own flow. It's a beautiful website.
I like the colors. And uh, like yeah, the also check out Sarah's website because it's really cool. Okay, <laughs> it's really cool. Until next time. We are, we your, are therapists. your therapists next door. Next door.